you for Jean and for all the gifts you have given her. And I thank you for all the time she has spent in preparation with you. I now pray, Lord, that you will anoint her with your spirit to teach and lead us and open your word more fully to us than before. Ask these things through Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Adele. Morning, everyone. Nice to see so many of you back from your holidays, I trust, and some glowing with the sunshine that you've had on your faces. It's lovely. During a vicar's sermon, a large plant, I hope that doesn't happen over there, fell over right behind him, crashing to the ground. Acknowledging his reputation for long-windedness, he smiled sheepishly and said, well, that's the first time I actually put a plant to sleep. So I hope I don't do that this morning. Our passage today is another day in the life of Jesus the teacher. He's just chosen his 12 disciples on the mountain after a night in prayer. And now he comes down from the mountain onto the plain. Now Jesus would have repeated many, day in, day out, many of the truths that he was trying to teach the people. So many of the elements in this passage we've just read in Luke are the same as in the passage in, Mount, in Matthew, which is normally referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. This one in Luke is sometimes referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. Now Luke mentions three categories of people listening to the words of teacher Jesus. The 12 apostles he's just chosen, a large crowd of other disciples and followers, and a great number of ordinary people, including Gentiles from all over that area. Now, many of those standing in the crowd would have had deep needs. We saw a few weeks ago that Jesus' priority was not to heal or do anything else, but to preach the good news of the kingdom. But very graciously, he meets the needs of the people first before bringing his teaching. And perhaps that's a lesson for us from teacher Jesus, that we should try to meet the needs of people first in terms of friendship and love and acceptance and housing and food before we try preaching to them. We need to earn perhaps the right to, to speak by showing actions of love. Let's think about this phrase, power was coming from him and healing them all. In fact, Roger, I think it would be quite good to have the, um, the passage up. That would be good. Thank you. The Amplified Bible says, Healing power was all the while going forth from him. So the power and the healings were continuously overflowing from this itinerant teacher. Remember, Jesus was the only health service they had. He was the one opportunity that people had to be healed and to be touched by the power that was flowing from him. No wonder the crowds reached out to try and touch him. They wanted to make the most of the presence. That was the only healing from an outside source they were going to get. The amazing thing is that Jesus was filled with exactly the same power as we are filled, those of us who are believing Christians, and that is the power of the indwelling spirit. Yet notice, if you know your Bibles, a few days later, a lady comes to Jesus with that issue of blood for all those years. She reaches out and touches him, and Jesus immediately knows that power has left him. So Jesus replenished his power, as it were, by spending lots of time 
alone at night with his father. And if that happened to Jesus, how much more we, as his servants, need to replenish the power that goes from us when we reach out to people in need. We will be drained. Many of you have sort of perhaps looked forward to August so that you could relax and rest and regain some energy. And the way we do that is not just by resting physically. It's by coming back again and again to be with our Heavenly Father, replenish that source of the Holy Spirit, be refilled again. So Matthew, in his Sermon on the Mount, has nine Beatitudes. You probably noticed from this one in Luke that he chose only four of them. And he not only has just the four Beatitudes or blessings, but he adds four opposite woes. First, in verse 20, notice the words, looking at his disciples. So Jesus, first of all, addresses what he's going to say directly to his disciples as they stand amongst the crowd. He's bringing them the first lesson of the topsy-turvy world of the kingdom of God. Topsy-turvy because these beatitudes make a mockery of the world's values. They exalt what the world despises and reject what the world admires. And if you were in the crowd on that day, listening to the words of Jesus, they would have landed like a bombshell in your ears. Because every word is a challenge, both to his disciples and the crowds in general. And it still is. So blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. I'm sure Jesus realized that in the eyes of the, his supporters, they, of the eyes of the world, his supporters were seen as poor and sad and a bit despised. Most of them were poor fishermen. They had no resources of their own. Yet it is these very people that God is welcoming into his kingdom. And I expect some of you here may well feel that you fall in this category of feeling poor, especially compared to others. So Jesus seems to be saying, blessed are those of you who are poor in material things and who are also my disciples because you are putting your trust in God. He's not saying poverty in itself is a state of happiness. The word blessed doesn't mean happy because happy is an emotion that often comes from outward circumstances. No, the reason the poor are blessed is because they are part of the kingdom of God. And not just in eternity, but now. Notice Jesus says, yours is. It's not yours is going to be. Yours is. It's here and now. Being part of the kingdom of God. That's the blessing if you are poor. So you can already experience the feelings of well-being and spiritual joy that come from being a citizen of heaven. And being with Jesus is the greatest thing about heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. In those days, riches were seen as a sign of God's favour, which is why the poor were so pushed to one side. So Jesus must have startled his hearers by pronouncing blessings on the hungry. 
And yet his words are very much in line with so many texts in the Old Testament which his father proclaimed his love, his concern for the needs of the poor and hungry. And even Jesus' own mother, Mary, in the Magnificat, proclaimed, he has filled the hungry with good things. Now, of course, Jesus could be referring to those in the crowd or his disciples who were hungry physically. But he's also referring to those who are hungry spiritually, who are thirsting and hungering after God's righteousness. And the word now implies that the hunger will not last forever. For God will satisfy both their spiritual needs and their physical needs, certainly by his presence in their lives. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Jesus is with us in our weeping and our tears, and I know many of us are weeping. The authorised version of Psalm 56, verse 8, says he has kept all our tears in a bottle. And the picture is actually of a, a leather water bottle. And he has kept all our tears. He knows every single tear you have ever cried. Our tears are precious to him. He cares about our anguish and loss. I can remember a particular time going through bereavement. It's nearly 20 years ago now. I cried for two hours solidly absolutely sobbing my heart out. And then I felt God quite clearly say to me, stop crying, wash your face, put some makeup on and go out for a walk. (laughs) And I smile even now at the care and the intimacy and the preciousness of God's voice telling me that yes, it's okay to cry, but not to be overwhelmed by grief in such a way that it was detrimental to my own well-being. And of course, I still had children at home, young at the time. There is a saying, isn't there, that laughter is the best medicine. Well, over the years, researchers have conducted studies to explore the impact of laughter on health. And these studies reveal that laughter helps reduce pain, decreases stress-related hormones, and boosts the immune system. So when the Bible says in Proverbs 17, verse 22, a cheerful heart is like medicine, it's not just a figure of speech. God really knows what he's talking about and what he's saying. God values laughter. It's an amazing gift from him. And it certainly helps us cope with those sad times and the difficulties of everyday life. We certainly feel better when we've had a good laugh with somebody, with family and friends. And as Ecclesiastes 3 says, there is a time to cry, but there is a time to laugh. And there is a time to grieve, but there is a time to dance. And so don't feel guilty at the times you're laughing, even if you're in the midst of a sorrowful time. Jesus enjoyed life, and he must have laughed often. And it's almost as if God, through laughter, gives us a joyification in the midst of tears and sadness. Blessed are you when men hate you. Rejoice, for great is your reward. This is a difficult one, isn't it? I doubt any of us feel hated or excluded or insulted because we profess the name of Jesus. It may happen to Christians here occasionally, but it is certainly happening in other countries A few weeks ago, Paul Jazz in our home group 
shared about the Christians in India who are being beaten and even killed because they profess the name of Jesus. We find it difficult to even think in terms of rejoicing in such a situation. I can only say, perhaps you can echo this, that if we were ever placed in that situation, God would give us the strength and the understanding to cope and respond. So after the pronouncement of these four wonderful blessings of the poor, the hungry, the weeping and the persecuted, come the four woes. Now these have a strong element of alas or how terrible. They are expressions of regret, not a threat. In these blessings and woes, Jesus takes all the ingredients of a happy life, wealth, food, fun and popularity, and he warns that they will be totally overturned and reversed. So each of these four woes is the exact opposite of the four blessings that Luke highlights. So woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Now here Jesus is probably addressing all the rich folk in the crowd. Wealth tends to make people think they don't need anything else, and they can rely on their own resources rather than on God. So if we're trying to find fulfillment only through riches and wealth, then that wealth may be the only thing we ever get. And of course, it doesn't last. And as someone here is fond of saying, there are no pockets in shrouds. Perhaps there's a real sense here in this passage that we shouldn't be seeking comfort now at the expense of eternal life in the future. If you're satisfied with all this world has to offer now, then maybe you feel, I don't need Jesus. This is a solemn warning to those who are rich not to take delight in the things of the world rather than in taking delight in God. They've already enjoyed their riches, which is clearly shown in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. One of the commentaries I read said the word have in verse 24 is a key word in this passage. It's a business word which tradesmen would use to show the account was paid in full. Have is a verb indicating somebody possesses something. So teacher Jesus is saying, if you set your heart and bend your whole energies to obtain the things which the world values, you will probably get them. But that is all you will ever have. You already have your good life. You will already possess it. But if, on the other hand, you set your heart and bend all your energies to be utterly loyal and true to Jesus, you may well be poor in terms of this world, but you will experience now all the blessings of heaven and eternity. So woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Jesus seems to be continuing to describe the rich who have no earthly cares, but are not rich in faith. Again, it may refer to physical sufficiency that those who are satisfied with life now aren't thinking of the ultimate reality to come. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Maybe this is referring to the mocking or boastful laughter of the complacent rich who care little for others. When God's judgment day comes, they will be the ones left weeping. 
And woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. So this fourth woe is warning that while true prophets were hated, excluded, beaten and even killed, false prophets were well spoken of because they said what the people wanted to hear. So this is a warning against seeking the approval of the world rather than being faithful to God. A true prophet speaks far uncomfortable words that people don't want to hear. So this passage in Luke is highlighting the great reversal which will one day take place in the world. God thinks differently to us. So his kingdom seems to be a topsy-turvy world. We know his son Jesus didn't come riding into Jerusalem on a white charger, ready to save his people from the Roman occupation. No, instead he died on a cross as the suffering servant. Kingdom values are not what the world expects. Yet, however difficult our life is here on earth, Jesus is pointing us in verse 23 forward beyond this life into eternity where our reward will be great. And these blessings, these four blessings, are the wonderful consequences which come as a result of entering into the kingdom of God. But the flip side are these woes which come when our thoughts are centered on this life alone and not on eternity. These stark opposites in Luke highlight kingdom values which allow a Christian to look through the tears, to look beyond their hunger or their empty bank balances or beyond being hated and say, I am blessed simply because I know Christ. I may have nothing in this life, but I have everything I need for eternity. And again, in the topsy-turvy world of the kingdom of heaven, we already have, we already possess now what will one day be fully ours. And that guarantee is given to us because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He guarantees all that is to come. A couple of years ago, I shared in house group and in a sermon three encouraging words I came across in the book of Esther, chapter 9, verse 1, which say the reversal occurred. Other versions say the tables were turned or quite the opposite happened. And I started using the reversal occurred in my prayer times. It raised my faith to see however difficult or impossible a situation was, God could bring about reversal. And praise God, he did indeed change several situations. I found these words powerful and very effective Jesus is in the business of reversing the way the world looks at life, which is why these verses are such a challenge. Those who are poor now will one day be rich in heaven. The hungry now will one day be satisfied. Those who weep now will instead laugh, and the hated now will one day be accepted. So Jesus is really reassuring his followers that they are on the right track. The pain and the sorrow they may experience in this life will amply be rewarded in the future life in glory because they already possess now, they already have now citizenship in God's kingdom. So I wonder if you are encouraged 
by one of the blessings in this passage or if you are challenged by one of the woes. Perhaps we don't realise we already possess all we need as citizens of the kingdom of God and we may be in danger of living for fleeting comfort and reward now instead of the heavenly and eternal rewards that are promised to every believer in God's topsy-turvy kingdom. So perhaps it's time for us to come afresh, to listen to teacher Jesus, to realise he completely overturns the world's way of doing things, and without doubt he can make reversals happen. So come, come to hear what teacher Jesus has got to say to you. Come, each with our own needs, perhaps to be healed, perhaps to be set free, perhaps to be restored, perhaps to come with a situation that needs reversing, or come because we need to be renewed in the strength of the Holy Spirit. So first, come and listen. That's what the crowds did. They listened. Then come and reach out and touch Jesus and receive the power that is continually flowing out from him and find in the reaching out and in the touching that we already have, we already possess all the blessings of being part of the kingdom of God. Amen.